Hi there, my name is Paddy Butler, and this podcast is brought to you from Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. This week, I had the amazing opportunity to speak with literary legend Roberto Colasso. Now, Colasso's larger project seeks to understand, in many ways, uh, the complicated, complex, mysterious almost emergence of Western consciousness, particularly so with his masterpiece. In my view, one of the most original books of the late 20th century, The Marriage of Cadmus and Harmony. I also caught up with co-curator of the Stanley Kubrick exhibition at the Design Museum, Adriana Grun. We chatted about the many areas covered in the exhibition, Kubrick's collaborations on set design, lens design, the many literary influences, etc., etc. But first, I wanted to recommend some reading around both of these subjects. And there are a lot of novels harking back or going back and reinterpreting the ancient Greek myths. Joe Barker has retold the story of Briseis, a princess who is made a slave to Achilles, the man who killed her husband and brothers. And also Madeline Miller uh, with Circe, the witch who seduces Homer's Odysseus. Amazing stuff from both of those authors. And on, on top of that, or following that, The Porpoise by Mark Haddon. This is of particular interest for me, more because I, I, I think the legend of Pericles is so fascinating. An incredible historical actor, orator, who was heavily involved in the prosecution of the Peloponnesian War. But I also wanted to recommend a most stunning survey of ancient Greek philosophy and my favourite non-fiction book of the last couple of years. I always talk about this book, uh, whether to friends or otherwise. Tim Whitmarsh's Battling the Gods is an original study of that period of transition. When the pre-Socratics began to question the mythic gods of Homer and Hesiod, uh, leading to, I suppose, the emergence of a more sceptical philosophical understanding of belief systems. Incredible book, incredible survey. One, as I say, one of the best nonfiction books I've read in the last few years, uh, along with Carlo Rovelli, The Order of Time is another one. But that's another story. Um, the last book I want to recommend is Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick, Arthur C. Clarke, and the making of a masterpiece by Michael Benson. Very interesting to get this sort of insight into the almost Herculean effort undertaken by Kubrick in making this masterpiece epic film. But now we go and talk to Roberto Colasso, and we began by talking about history and myth and the core essence of his new book, The Unnameable Present. Sort of kindergarten version of history uh, could amount to this that uh, in at the beginning all started with gods mm. and people followed gods and mm. then abandoned the gods and there was a single god, a unique god and they followed him and then progressively they, they started to abandon him and then you had a king mm. and the king was there uh, because of a, there was a sort of divine Law which legitimated yeah. him, and they followed the king, and then they killed him. Mm. And after the king, what there was was a parliament. There was a parliament, and then people followed the parliament, and then the parliament became something rather obsolete and uh, ineffective. And then what you get is is what now is called the cloud. 
the iCloud, the iCloud. And at that moment, you have to remember the beginnings because the beginnings are another cloud. Yeah. Because the cloud out of which the gods spoke and Yahweh particularly yeah. spoke. If you open the Bible, you see that Yahweh, when Moses is going from Egypt back uh, to, uh, to, to, to to Canaan, and uh, the he and his people move according to the movement of the cloud, which stays on top okay. of of the ark of the sanctuary. And uh, so it's rather disconcerting. You ask yourself, what is the difference? Well, in fact, you know, the iCloud, uh, the difference is uh, mathematical, first of all. The iCloud is made of bits, and bits are discrete points. And the uh, cloud uh, of the gods is a continuum, so it's the opposite. So you have a very strange situation in the middle of which we are living, and that is that we have a sort of counterpart, an inverse counterpart of the beginnings, and at the same time a sort of parody of the beginnings, because of course they are totally opposite. Yeah. And that is embarrassing. That makes people very uncertain about what to think and what they have around them. And that is typical of the secular society. Okay. And another thing which is typical of uh, what we call secular society is that on one side, it's, after all, the only kind of society where it is tolerable to live, because nobody would like to live under a theocratic regime or something else, or a dictatorial one. Okay. Uh, and at the same time, the thought of the secular society is terribly weak and so inadequate to deal with what it has to deal with Human around it. Yeah. Well, nature, uh, gods, cosmos, whatever. Mm. E- everything which is outside society. Because they think everything happens inside society. So, in the end, there is a sort of resistance towards itself of secular society. So that's why many conflicts start. And uh, so you see, one goes very far. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and with that, in the book, uh, it seems that Simone Weil is, is quite a, a presence or a guiding absolutely. light. No, well, Simone Weil was the one who understood uh, very clearly this fact of society becoming self-sufficient as a point of reference and all thought to be referred to society. And she took that from a passage in Plato in the Republic where he says that society is a big animal and that everything belongs to this big animal and he says very clearly what are the consequences of that. And Weil, Simon Weil, applied that to her own world, what was happening around her. I think she was the most clear-sighted critic of society of those years. Okay. And is she, she's an author that, that you return to quite I a lot? I uh, think she's one of the great minds uh, of the last century, absolutely. And, uh, and uh, it's always precious to go back to her. Yeah, particularly in the notebooks. Okay. <laughs> notebooks are the most substantial part of her work. 
And is, there's another quote at the start of the book from Wittgenstein, which also ties into this, the um, man as a... Man, the Fraser. Yeah, animal of... The Fraser, of, the, the notes on Fraser. Yeah, the ceremonial animal. Well, you know, they're marvelous, those notes of by Wittgenstein and Fraser, because uh, in their aphoristic way, you see how he had perfectly understood what Fraser was not capable to understand. Okay. And so it's a very, very subtle criticism. And um, I think that uh, sentence is very important. To be a ceremonial animal will, means to recognize the invisible, simply that. And uh, so to do something in connection with this entity, which can be whatever. And uh, so that's why I quote it. Okay. Right, very, very interesting. Uh, and the other, the other main or major thinker within this is Leibniz, and it's quite interesting because his his idea of binary calculus, which yeah, I put it in the book because I mean everybody, our world is uh, based on the binary number system. Yeah, uh, without it. We wouldn't leave. No object in this room would exist. Computers, digital. And, yeah, everything. Telephone, everything. Yeah. And uh, uh, microphones, everything. So, what happens is that the beginnings of this are uh, not uh, Western science, but the fact that a great mind like Leibniz uh, came to know the I Ching, which is the terribly old. Uh, book of divination of ancient China, and you know the I Ching, I Ching, is made of lines, yeah. of continuous and broken lines, mm. and he got from that the idea of the binary number system, and he thought he had, for he was the first to have this idea of a sort of now you call it's called globalization, but in yeah. intellectual yeah. terms. Yeah. And he wanted to be in touch with the Emperor of China. The Emperor of China never replied. <laughs> they never took notice of this yeah. uh, experiment of this uh, the, uh, this idea of Leibniz, but it remains in the text. And uh, it's curious how these things happen, and not many people Lots of people think there is no connection at all between uh, the <laughs> Ching, for instance, and yeah. what we are living, to, uh, living through today. But, and of course, the, the, the meaning of the I Ching is not exactly bits and information theory. Yeah. It's actually it's quite interesting because Umberto Eco he he cites this as well in one of his yeah, books. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I don't know where, but you know it's important. Yeah, it's important. But the point is that uh, what we have to understand it's not the binary number system of which we know enough. It's what is the real meaning of the I Ching. <laughs> that is that is simply okay. something we still have to discover. That's right. That's right. The, uh, so the, the last question then I have, or I, I guess it's less of a question, or it's an interpretation, but um, in uh, The Marriage of Cadmus and Harmony, you, you, you talk beautifully about Anenka and yeah. necessity, and the, that, if I, you described it in the terms that it is, it is the one thing that has neither statues nor mm -hmm. 
you know, yeah, monuments, images. Yeah. yeah, neuro images. Is it is that is that one of the major? Do you feel it's one of the major driving forces, um, um, uh, behind human human endeavor? Well, of course, you know, for the 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 gods of uh, the Olympian gods uh, had only one power to which they that they revered and followed. That was uh, an exactly. And Anke was something which was beyond them. You know, uh, Zeus yeah. uh, cannot save the life of his son, Sarpedon, because of Anke. And uh, it's a great metaphysical, metaphysical concept. And it goes through all Western history. And it has, of course, counterparts, for instance, in India, mm. of course, but uh, it's... Uh, it's necessary. It's not a joke. It's a necessary concept. Well, super interesting chat with Roberto Colasso. Real privilege to talk with, with an absolute titan. And I'll also be reading up on Simone Weil. I hadn't realised uh, the effect. I, well, I, I, it was a gap in my knowledge. I have to say. Following on from a master of literature, we now look at the work of a cinematic master auteur in Stanley Kubrick, who made the likes of Clockwork Orange, Lolita, and The Shining, of course. I met curator Adriana Grün, and we started talking about the set design for Space Odyssey and the famous Centrifuge, a pre-CGI masterwork of design and optical illusion. The centrifuge as a massive set of about 40 feet high. So it's where it, there's a really nice scene that you see one of the astronauts in the Discovery. You see them uh, jogging and it's sort of this round circular room that they're jogging in. Mm. And um, the set was actually built so it could rotate around them mm. and they would, they would just stay on the same spot all the time. So it's also to... Um, I think to get an idea of weightlessness as well mm. um, but the actual set was so it was 40 feet high it was um, built by a British engineering company and it is it was one hell of a construction mm. and it was huge mm. and then you had different segments that would turn you had special cameras that had to be mounted in a way so they could film in a certain way flip over without without actually, uh, how do you say that, flipping the image upside down. Um, But what I love about it is it was really one-on-one with the film. So it's like you said, before anything like CGI, Mm. they just build it as it was. The same thing they actually did with with Space Station 5, Mm. which is where you've got the Hilton Hotel lobby and you've got the beautiful gin chairs, the pink chairs, where they're sitting... That was a also a massive set, and I found a picture um, in the archive from actually showing that one as well. And you see the light construction around that Amazing. set because it's really bright bottom to the ceiling as well as the floor. And there are, God, must be hundreds and hundreds of massive spotlights behind it to create the, the illuminating effect. But to go back to the centrifuge, mm. um, there's a beautiful model that you can kind of see how they build it. Okay, in so the exhibition. That will be in the exhibition, alongside some of the technical drawings as well. Amazing. Um, so whether it's sort of a diagram 
or um, you know, it, I call that an inside cut of it, mm-hmm. uh, and then photographs, and then we've dug up some footage from the 1960s um, program. What's it called again? 2001. Look, but look beyond the future, which mm-hmm. I thought was always a great, always a great mm-hmm. title. But they're actually on the set and they're talking okay. to several people. But then you can kind of see it in, in, in the actual setting, mm-hmm. and, and you kind of experience the, the vastness of yeah. it. Um, I think another amazing piece of of technology in in space, uh, space Odyssey was the slit scan device. Oh yeah. So what's that? Explain that to listen. Yeah. So it's a special machine that Douglas Trumbull um, built. So he was working with with Kubrick um, on on Space Odyssey, and he came to work on other other films as well mm-hmm. for special effects. But it's been used for the Stargate sequence. So that's when um, it's also referred to as the flight to Jupiter. Mm-hmm. It's when. Astronaut uh, Bowman sort of hurled into space, and you have all the flashing lights, mm, and you mm, see him very close mm, up in, mm. the, in behind behind his helmet, um, and then it ends with him in a hotel room. Mm. But that is a very long, it's a very long scene, and it's. Um, do you think? Do you think Kubrick is is that is that descending into a black hole? Do you think, or is that too? I mean, was that was any of that documented in his notes, his research, or that in terms of? He kind of left it over. I mean, there's certain theories about how yeah. you need to read it and yeah. how you could read how you know you got the star child in the end. Um, and Kubrick did say that he didn't like to explain his films mm. because he liked that other people had sure. their own interpretation of it. And yeah. I think especially with that scene. Um, that's quite important. It also became the scene that, because um, at one point, when the film came out, it was, uh, I mean, it was well received, mm. but not as not as big as they wanted. Yeah. Until a few days, I think a few days or about a week later after it premiered, there was a guy on a radio in America who said, it was quite a, sort of, it was a radio program for quite sort of a young audience, and he said, "I just went to see this film. You gotta see it. Yeah. It's like being on a trip." Yeah. Okay. And that there we go. That sort of swelled into all these young kids seeing the film, and they redesigned the poster as well, as in the ultimate trip. Right. Um, because it is a bit like, yeah. like a trip, and even even Steven Spielberg has an anecdote. He says, "I've I've never been on a trip," and then I went to see that film, and he was like. Guess that that is what a trip is like. Um, but actually, to make that to make that sequence was very very tricky. Mm-hmm. And um, so, what Trombo was looking at is actually moving. I mean, I can't. It's very difficult to explain. Just describe it. To yeah. explain, but it has to do with a camera moving back and forth towards a sort of black, mm-hmm. sort of black frame, black mm-hmm. pane. But there was a very tiny slit in, mm-hmm. and behind that slit, they would move artwork, just different colors right. or streaks back and forth. Okay. So you have two movements in sort of opposite direction, and and that being with the lens completely open again, um, it's like it's like taking a photograph if you're on a bridge above a highway, yeah. and you take it yeah. with the lens open, and all all the traffic lights become yes, streaks. That's that's the principle okay. of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But each I think it took for each frame took at least God, I think maybe a minute or more to make 
and then you have a scene which is so long. Yeah. Uh, so they worked on it at least four to six months straight. And it's, I mean, I have to say, it's a film that came out in 1960s. It still holds up. Oh, it looks, it's so, it looks it's, perfect. It's like pin sharp. It's, it's, yeah. it's incredible. Yeah. Um, and then on, on from that, I guess, which is kind of natural enough, um, the, the, the technical aspect of the films, how have you... How have you represented that, or how have you gone into that? Have you have you have you exhibited any of the lenses that? Because he developed his own lenses, didn't he, as well, um, for for Barry Lyndon, I think, and also uh, Space Odyssey. I think he developed a, a wide angle lens, didn't he, for that? Yes, yeah, so the lens for super wide angle lens. Yeah, or the, like yeah. That. He always filmed with an open shutter. Um, that was actually a lens uh, by Zeiss. Mm. They actually developed it for NASA. Wow! For um, so he wasn't he was he wasn't messing around, was he? He was like going straight uh, to the top guy. Yes, <laughs> but it was also a very weird lens to film with because it's right. not it's not made for filming. So Barry Lyndon. Um, Why? What, so what was it made for? If it wasn't made for filming. Was it just still? It was for um, I think it was. Satellite photography or okay. or star photography. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it's one of the two. It kind of it's it's gone now in my head. Yeah. But he wanted so he in other in other films set in, in other sort of centuries or in the 18th century, mm. they used a lot of artificial light, and he yeah. didn't want to do that yeah. because he said that your your you know, the, the the authenticity of it disappears. Yeah. So what he wanted to do is film by candlelight. Yeah. So the original light source from that, which mm. is either daylight or candlelight. But all the cameras at that time were not equipped to film by candlelight. Mm. Um, and then kind of looking for options, uh, I think it was his executive producer who, who kind of stumbled upon these these lenses for, for NASA. Mm. And I believe they made 25 in total and there were three left, okay. so they bought the whole the, the whole three. Um, but then it was a problem to mount that on the camera. So you had this BNC Mitchell cameras, which I think are blimp noise cameras, noise production cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, so they actually got a engineer in to mount it, but he said, "Look, I need to, I kind of need to rework your entire camera." And he was like, "Fine." just make it work wow. and apparently there's sort of a depth between the lens and then the sort of the camera equipment oh, and that I was see. so yeah, thin yeah, yeah, yeah. that he had to haul like or remount it there but the I mean the effect is astonishing I don't know if you've seen the it's film just, oh, it's, it's, but it's it's, incredible. it's 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 you know every single image is a painting are you exhibiting some of his own writings that we could you know the, the viewer or the you know somebody who's visiting the exhibition could could look at yeah we do have his uh, personal copy of The Shining wow as well as uh, The Luck of Barry Lyndon mm. by Thackeray mm. um, and gosh which other ones Nabokov Nabokov not his personal no, one but the nice thing about Nabokov is um, that it was actually Nabokov who wrote the screenplay as mm. well yeah and yeah. that was the only time so he, he often wrote 
I often work together with other authors to mm. do it. But this was the author of the original book wow. actually writing the, the screenplay. What was their relationship like? That must have. I, I tried to kind of. There's there's quite a bit of research into that, mm. but um, I actually went to the 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 University of the Arts in London houses the Kubrick archive, and the majority of the exhibition was actually based on his archive. Mm. Um, but we're only showing a fraction. Like his archive right. is over eight hundred meters long. Wow! It is it is ridiculous, but it's the most. It's like a treasure going through there. Yeah. So I really looked. Well, I visited a few times. So this, that's an elephant and castle, mm. uh, and trying to look at their correspondences as well. And uh, a lot goes through Vera, who is his translator and wife. Um, so we have one of her letters as well to Kubrick. And um, a letter from, from Vladimir uh, Nabokov to Kubrick saying that he wants to do it. Because at the beginning he was quite reluctant Extraordinary. of, of doing this project. Yeah. And then he thought about it for a while. And then he was like, OK, no, I will be involved. So did you actually have that in your hand? Were you actually looking at that? I did. The... Wow. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah. I'm very jealous. Wearing protective gloves, obviously. <laughs> Were you um, shaking? Uh, it's... Um, well, it's it's just it's it's weird to go through. I mean, I say weird, maybe extraordinary to go through that material and mm. know that that's you know that that's either been passed through Kubrick and and it's what I like is every piece of paper still continues to amaze me yeah, by, yeah. by seeing it. Um, and with, for example, the the this little notes also that the initial screenplay that Nabokov wrote. Mm. I think was enough material for seven hours of film. Wow. So he had to cut it down drastically and then it was back and forth, back and forth, yeah. a process of finding it. And he changed the book, the changed the, the, the chronology of the film slightly. Mm-hmm. I don't know if mm-hmm. that's going to be a spoiler alert for people, <laughs> but in, you know, the, the book kind of leads towards the murder of Claire Quilty by, by Humbert. Humbert, Humbert. Yeah. And, um, for the film, they actually pull that to the beginning. Right. So you kind of have a different emphasis on, on the story. Rather, it's uh, rather like, um, how do I say? Obviously, they had to, uh, it being a very controversial novel. Yeah. Um, doing this film was quite controversial as well. And mm. it was, it was um, a, lot of, a lot of organizations tried to uh, stop it. So, last question. What have you taken from this specifically about the man, about Kubrick? What have you, I, I guess, um, learned from spending so much time with this genius creator? His absolute attention and love for detail. Mm. And a lot of people describe him as, you know, sort of a man that, an obsessive perfectionist. But everyone who I've met speaks absolutely high and loving about him. Mm. And a man who really, really loved making the perfect picture. And I think you can see that in in how he approaches everything. Mm. And that's what I... Well, what an interesting conversation and really just nice to get that perspective on the two pillars of literature and cinema. Uh, Fantastic stuff. 
as always do check out our full cultural program listings on secondhome.io and see you next time